Hello everyone, and this is In This Moment Podcast, and I'm your host, Diallo Smith. This episode is titled, Post-Election, Christians, Now What? In this conversation, we talk about what a Biden administration means for Christians, the harms of claiming a policy as a Christian policy, and if young evangelicals who voted non-Republican are doing so for advocacy and shifting views, or are they doing this out of rebellion reaction against Trumpism? I pray this conversation can bless you and that you can walk away being more inclined on how to hold fellow believers accountable in politics. So enjoy episode eight, post-election Christians Now What, featuring Elsa Barron. Hey, Elsa, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing really good. Um, I'm so excited to get into today's episode titled Post-Elections Christians Now What? Um, Today, we're going to be talking about all the changes we have seen in this election cycle and what should Christians do now having Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as our president-elect and vice president. Elsa, our guest today is someone who I found on social media after she was on Fox News talking about the reasoning she was voting for Biden as a young evangelical. Uh, In my opinion, I feel like she spoke with grace and I felt like she's representing a lot of the young evangelicals of this generation. Elsa, can you introduce yourself to everybody? Hi. Yeah. Thank you so much for hosting me. Um, my name is, is Elsa Barron. I'm a senior at the University of Notre Dame, and I'm studying biology and peace studies and minoring in sustainability. And so <laughs> I, I identify as an evangelical, uh, even though I've wrestled with that term and that identity, and I'm really excited to talk about what that means for me and my political life. Awesome. What would be your dream job if you could do something with your major or something outside of your major? Yeah, my dream job. I haven't really pinned down. <laughs> Who knows if this will happen, but okay. the UN Environment Program has something called a Faith for Earth Initiative that wow. mobilizes grassroots communities around the world to take climate action and engage in interfaith dialogue. And that is something that just really speaks to my heart and I think would have a big impact, but at a local level, which is what I'm really excited about. So that's the dream. I I don't know if it's achievable, but I'm holding that in my heart. Yes. Amen. Speak it. Speak it into (laughs) existence. We love that. Um, So one of the first things is what made you interested in politics? I think way back in the day, I I grew up doing speech in high school, and what I did was a specific event that was all about politics and international relations and economics and answering questions about current events. And so that really got me into reading the news every day and talking about the news with friends um, and even like doing a competitive event (laughs) about the news. And so that sort of got me started in this initial interest and it has sort of evolved in many ways since then to be not necessarily just grounded in this event I was doing, but um, in the types of ideas I'm thinking about and the jobs I'm pursuing and the context in courses and conversations with friends. But I think politics is simply put one of the ways that Um, both power operates in the world and change is made in the world. Mm. And I'm pretty critical of power, but I think that it's necessary 
to make change and it's possible to mobilize power to speak on behalf of those without it. And so that's what really excites me now is how to use this platform and get engaged in politics in a way um, that is both, that is helpful to people who um, most need it. And I think that's a calling inspired by both academic interest and thought, but also by faith. Wow, that is awesome. So with that, it kind of sounds like your major kind of evolved also within politics that fits right well into it. Uh, Would you say that this election, uh, I'm guessing this was your first presidential election to be voting in, was this very hard for you, this decision making, or was it something that was a little bit easier? (laughs) Yeah, actually, when you say that out loud, this was my first presidential election (laughs) that I voted in, but it it just doesn't feel like it. I know. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, that's that's really funny. Um, honestly, I think this election season was exhausting and painful (laughs) and, you know, really mobilized and exciting in some ways. And there were so many wins, but at the same time, um, especially because of the constraints, I think of COVID-19 and interacting Mm. with people on mostly virtual platforms, sometimes, especially on social media, you just lose sight of, the humanity of people and it's so hard to have conversations and I think we get divided into these camps and so honestly um I don't think I enjoyed this election season (laughs) at the same time um it was amazing to be actively engaged in it and having conversations around it um both in my own communities and also um in more national platforms and it felt like things, you know, it felt like one of the first times where I was seeing the kind of difference that advocacy could make in the world and just sort of reaffirmed my desire to keep working in that space in the future. Were you surprised by the results of the election? Yes and no. Um, Okay. I think I knew it was going to be a close election, especially the day election results came out, I knew that with the mail-in vote, the mail-in ballots coming in later, it was going to look really tight and it was going to be very stressful. And I knew that going into it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, at the same time, I'm just always surprised to see the amount of support there is, not for the Republican Party, but specifically for Trump. And I think it's... Yeah becoming its own kind of politics and this community of Trumpism is really concerning to me. And Mm. just to see that amplified through both the election results and through social media was still surprising to me. It it shouldn't be at this point, but it was. Um, So that was surprising, but I, I was pretty confident going into this election that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris would win and that it would be, you know, not a landslide victory and, and things would probably look dicey at first. So in that sense, what happened was sort of what I was expecting. In another sense, um, nothing about this election or even the past four years has been predictable. Yeah. 
How was it on campus? Because uh, you go to Notre Dame and I go to Liberty University, both religious affiliated schools. Was were people like excited or were they upset? How was the the temperament on campus? I think general excitement. Um, there was a mock election, and the results came in um, resounding for Biden. Although I mean, there is support on campus for Trump. Um, I think yeah. it's it's actually especially I, I don't know how it would look in a traditional election with a candidate that perhaps was not as extreme as Donald Trump. But I yeah. think a lot of people think of Notre Dame as a more conservative campus, which I think it is, especially at the administration level. But the yeah. student body, um, I think, in this election was overwhelmingly in support of Biden and so there was wow there was nervous excitement throughout the week a lot of nervous excitement <laughs> in court in, in my classes but um yeah that was the general atmosphere I would say that's yeah that's good um I would say at Liberty it was it is a very conservative school but I would say the student body has definitely leaned more into the middle and so even just in my friend groups a lot of people who are Republicans did vote for Joe Biden Kamala Harris and so I remember that night I had a lot of people there like oh Trump's gonna get he's gonna get it and then when Joe Biden won uh I wasn't on campus but I was with a friend and people were calling me and I think everybody was just at this point in time, kind of like what you were saying, I don't know how it would be if it wasn't such an extreme candidate as Donald Trump. But I think this was a historic moment for if you're a Republican voting for Biden, like country over party. And so people were just excited that there won't be so much divisiveness and rhetoric. And I mean, there still were people that were upset, but I think our student body kind of handled it a lot better than what I thought they were going to handle it. Yeah. That's good to hear. What would you say, like, how how would you describe this historic moment for you and for America? It feels like a breath of fresh air. And I I think for me, maybe I'll speak more for, I think, the people in our age group and our generation. Mm -hmm. And also, I'm the oldest of three sisters. And so for my younger sisters as well. Um, This has been a really tumultuous time to come of age in the United States. And Mm. a lot of people are drawing parallels between 2020 and 1968. And just the level of national unrest coupled with international events. And between the pandemic, between a very unconventional presidency, between racial injustice and nationwide unrest, I think that, you know, our generation has been holding our breaths to see if if there's possibility in this world. Um, Mm. We're coming of age into this tumult and we want to know, like, is there is there a possible future that we can imagine that we can build on? And I think this election was a huge step in just being able to exhale for a moment and realize that um, this is not a permanent status, that the world will come. There is some stability. There is possibility for reconciliation, for um, 
a kind of dialogue that allows for disagreement, but can happen mm. in a reasonable way um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with polite rhetoric and respect for one another. Like those are the kind of things that we were waiting to see in this election. It was about a yeah. lot more than the individuals themselves. And so I think that this was a really important moment for the stability of young people in our country, just to realize that, um, you know, there's a future, there is stability, there's a lot more work to do, but we feel like we have our footing and a foundation upon which to work. Exactly. I love that you said it felt like an exhale because that's truly like what it felt like when it was Joe Biden was the projected winner. Just like, okay, finally we can get back on track. And um, something that Joe Biden always ran off of, it wasn't he was going to flip Capitol Hill upside down with policies. It was to be a bipartisan president and to restore the soul of this nation. And so it was kind of like what you were saying of having room for disagreement again, and but being civil, not name calling and blaming each other and dividing America as the left and the rights and the conservatives and liberals. It was we're Americans that have different thoughts and agreements. Um, but we're going to be able to come to the table and try to push the American agenda further and try to sharpen each other. And so I was very excited and just calm and just kind of had a a weight lifted off of knowing finally we can get back to politics where it's civil. And yes, there is going to be a lot of work and there are still a lot of changes that need to happen, but at least there can be room for that change to happen and voices for that change to happen at the table. Yeah, yeah, definitely. A weight that is lifted, a breath that's finally able to come out, that kind of emotion. Yes, (laughs) exactly. So with that, um, as you were saying, with you and the younger generation, with us of how we came out to vote, um, do you see specifically a shift with the younger evangelicals and the older evangelical generation before us on how we vote and how we view issues? Yes, I think in my in my personal life and experience, I definitely see that. And it's interesting because the statistics are showing that there's still um, there's a, a huge majority of white evangelical voters who voted for Donald Trump in this election. Um, some statistics yeah. are showing a slight decrease from 2016. Others are showing that, you know, it was basically the same, but it, it wasn't a drastic change. But when I look at the people that I grew up with, going to church with, um, that I'm currently in faith communities with, um, it looks very different. And the young people that I know um, are, think very differently than the older generations that I know. And I see sort of these two cohorts both interacting and posting on social media, and it's almost like night and day. So I I think there's a large difference between the way young evangelicals and older evangelicals are voting. But my concern is that the young people who are voting differently aren't going to grow up to be an alternative voice in the evangelical community, but rather Hmm. they're going to leave the evangelical community because it so overwhelmingly thinks one way and, wow. and search out and and these people likely like they might not leave the faith but they might just find another faith community to identify with and so my concern is that um 
these different thoughts and this different energy coming from younger people in the church isn't going to translate into, you know, future conversations and future change. It's just going to leave Mm. and go elsewhere. Um, And I really, I resonate with that desire. And I think it's a lot easier to find another community that fits better. And I don't know what the answer is to that question, but um, it's interesting because Mm. people people talk about, okay, there's this gap. The younger voters are thinking differently than the older voters, but then it doesn't seem to translate into really substantive differences in the way people are voting when you look at the polls. And I think that might be one of the reasons Mm. why. Wow. I, uh, I think that's a really good point that you said it was these young evangelicals. It's not necessarily them wanting to be alternative voice but more of just a reaction of such the extreme of Trumpism or conservatism that they're just going over there as, as like a rebellion statement. And I think looking at this election, I would say I did see a really big shift um, when it comes to the evangelical community. It was, I think it was like 1600 uh, pastors and clergy members that endorsed Joe Biden. And it was the most, ever faith group members to endorse a democratic uh, candidate ever um, in history. And then, and then there was also the pro-life evangelical group that had Richard Foster and Franklin Graham's granddaughter and a whole other like group of evangelicals that are very popular in our community that came out and endorsed him. And I saw Mm -hmm. with the polls, there was one poll that's like, it didn't show that there was a shift, but I did see that, uh, we were able to shift the evangelical vote. It was about 22%. Um, I think before Trump had it at like almost 90%. And now it kind of dropped to like the mid 70s. Mm. And so there there was, there has been some shift, but kind of like you said, it hasn't been as significant. But watching uh, and seeing all these different uh faith leaders kind of come behind Joe Biden, I was very encouraged. And I guess now it's just up to see, will will we keep pushing our agenda and our faith agenda and not doing it as just a settle or just as a rebellion act against conservatism or people um, in our faith community that think the same Mm. way? Yeah, that's super important, what you're identifying as a shift in leadership and in conversation. And just the number of articles that have come out um, saying, you know, this is my first time voting for a Democrat, but I just can't vote for for Donald Trump a second time. And I think this has been something that I've seen a lot in the evangelical community. Um, And then even I remember, oh, it was at least a year ago that Christianity Today, there was an op-ed that was published about um, how the evangelical community needs to stop supporting Donald Trump because he yeah. is demonstrating all of these immoral values and immoral actions that normally Christians would be speaking yeah. out against in with c- people in positions of power. And I was like blown away by this article in this really prominent Christian magazine um, and, and wouldn't yeah. expect to see that in you know 
any other time. But those are the sorts of things that are coming out from the leadership level. So that that is a really good point. Yeah. What do you think is the next step for evangelicals after the election results and having Biden in office? Yeah, I think one thing, especially with all of this hype about this presidential election, sometimes what's lost is the importance of state elections and local elections and maybe not even elections, but local community organizations and your church community and the way you're interacting with people in your neighborhood. Like these are all parts of being a politically engaged citizen. It's not just about voting for president. Um, It's about engaging in the community that you are a part of as well. And I think regardless of whether people are coming out of this election feeling like they can take the first deep breath in four years, or they're incredibly disappointed by the results and feel like, um, you know, this is a, this is going to be a hard next four years. I think both of those people can come together likely and agree about a local change that needs to happen or a local policy. Um, It's not as divisive as at the national level and it's often forgotten, but at the same time, it's a Mm. place where we can like enact incredible change and make a real difference in people's lives and demonstrate you know, not just, okay, what does, maybe what's our political agenda on a national level, but like throw agendas aside. What, what is our value? How do we value human dignity and human life? And so there's going to be a select group of people who have the ability to sway national policies and make change at a national level or an international level. And they can leverage power in a really important way and can use their values to make positive changes But that doesn't um, negate the fact that everyone has the power to leverage um, in their local communities and to build better, regardless of who is sitting in the White House. And we can, you know, move forward on that ground as well. Yeah, you kind of answered one of the questions, but what would what do you say to a brother or sister who voted for for Trump and is very upset and um is kind of feeling isolated how do we reconcile that relationship with with believers yeah i think um i have a lot of questions for evangelicals with deeply held value held values who were very supportive of trump and um i think i'm tempted to make those questions <laughs> very very aggressive or challenging and I don't think that's the way to go about it but I think there is a space for questioning and asking um, what are the values that led you to make this decision in voting and what is driving you and what's your top priority and the amazing thing is that I found with people and with family members that I disagree with on nearly every policy position there can still be an underlying shared value. And I have so many questions about how that can translate to entirely different perspectives on on politics. But identifying that shared value can be really important in having dialogue and being able to say, oh, like you made a decision because you have this value. Well, interestingly, 
I share that value and I came to a different conclusion and here's why. And then maybe you can Mm. work off of that shared value to think about ways that, um, again, changes could happen at a local level um, to to enact the different kind of worlds that you want to see. And maybe it only gets so far as a, um, you know, tense conversation. But even that is important. The ability to look at each other face to face and be able to talk, I think, is part of the peace building process. It's part of the reconciliation process. And it's part of building a society that that we can live in. And so, yeah, I think the starting point is really in questioning, getting to know the person's values and maybe sharing uh, find identifying a shared point of value that you can come together around. That's good. And I think something that we have to remember is um, just because we vote different doesn't mean that gives us an excuse to not love that person. And one of the things I was thinking about and I've been struggling with in this season is how do you still remain unified with each other and be reconciled? And I just thought about Ephesians 4, Verse two, and it says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And I think that last part of bearing with one another in love just talks about the importance of how we don't like we need to remember that love is still in the dialogue. Love is still in the um, in the disagreement. And that's something that we are required and commanded to do with one another, Um, no matter how different we may be. uh, We have to remember that when it comes to the body, that we have to have that at the forefront on our on our minds is to be able to still love our brother and sister, despite the politics that they might view or agree yeah. to. And I think it's really interesting, like throughout Christ's life, um, he was often like very critical of people in leadership um, in the church. Yeah. For example, the Pharisees are sort of an example that's repeated again and mm. again. And I don't think it was necessarily like, because they were, I think a large part of that was because they were people in power. And so he was holding power accountable for the decisions it was making to the detriment of the people. But I think when you approach the people, it's an entirely different conversation. Um, And you can still have the same critiques of power and the way that power is used to oppress people and the way structures are used to oppress people. But when you're talking with people, they might feel just as disempowered um, and and have different conclusions and different beliefs. But I think the conversation is very different and one that stems from, again, what you're mentioning of love and compassion and bearing with one another. I love that word because yeah. it seems to imply yes. that you're like, <laughs> you are bearing down, like this is hard stuff, but you're, you're sticking with it. Yes. Something that I think is really huge in in our community and evangelicals is the abortion issue. So what do we do about the abortion issue under a Biden and Harris administration? Yeah, that's a challenging conversation and something that I think is has been one of the largest pushbacks and conversations I've had um, in regard to my advocacy for the Mm. Biden administration. Um, and it's a challenging con- topic because I am pro-life, but 
I think that the pro life issue is so much more expansive than um, the abortion issue or than a single legal ruling on the abortion issue. And so I think there's a lot of challenge in this conversation, but there's a lot of different opportunities to work. So um, I think there are a lot more effective ways to decrease abortions than making abortions Mm. illegal. And people will challenge me on that. And I I certainly um, am willing to have conversations and have my mind changed. But I think there are so many policies that we can make to increase access to healthcare, support for women, um, support for vulnerable communities that can be more effective in actually not just stopping um, stopping the bad thing from happening, but like getting to the root of the problem because the overwhelming research shows that women don't want to have abortions. They choose to have abortions yeah. because of other variables in their life that make them feel that they, they don't have the capacity to support a child or bring a pregnancy to full term. And those structural root issues are things that we can address and I think are things that um, are likely on the mind of the Biden administration mm-hmm. and, and other politicians in ways that aren't traditionally even thought of as pro-life. And there's so many ways to expand this conversation. And then yeah. when you think about um, things yeah. like climate change and environmental degradation and pollution, like those are also things that impact life and impact pregnancies and impact mm. children mm-hmm. and do so at, at rates that disproportionately burden those in poverty um, and racial communities yeah. that are already marginalized and indigenous peoples. And so when we start expanding this conversation about being pro-life, I think, first of all, it's able to connect with a broader audience and get people more on board for caring Mm. about the issue. But second of all, um, it roots out this sense of hypocrisy that I think is really obvious to people who are able Mm. to immediately identify, like, you Christians care about the unborn, but, like, you don't seem to care about your own neighbors, And when we're able to bridge that conversation and bring together a more holistic picture of life and what it means to be pro-life, I think um, even if people disagree with that platform, maybe there's a larger opportunity for respect and dialogue. Something I had to realize when it comes to the abortion issue, because I'm also pro-life, is that the abortion issue is a heart issue. Um, and so, yes, if there was an opportunity to make it illegal, I would vote for it. But I know I want people to understand that just because you make something illegal, that doesn't mean that it's going to stop and that the issue's fixed. I think another example of that is when I look at um, law enforcement, we've had so many different laws and different things to stop the killings of black and brown people Um with officers, but yet we're still seeing that issue happen because the issue did not stop because the root of it was the person in the heart of, of why they were doing that action. And so I do believe that in order to be 
pro-life and anti-abortion, it's not, it, they're not mutually exclusive of just because you want something illegal, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be also an advocate for um, paid leave. You shouldn't be an advocate for minimum wage. You, you shouldn't be an advocate um, to help mothers uh, that, like, that are Black women, Hispanic women that are dying disproportionately against um, other white women just due to health. Uh, and so I think we really discredit ourselves when we only solely want to focus on making something illegal and completely disregarding that it's it's more of a, a heart issue and it's more of a, a financial issue. I saw a statistic that was saying that 74% of women um, do have an abortion because of their financial situation. And so meeting that need first and then trying to see where this is going all leads to being an advocate of being pro-life that I really yeah, feel like we yeah, miss. Yeah, that's really powerful. What do you think, staying on the pro-life issue, what do you think has been the biggest thing that that has discredited uh, pro-life evangelicals um, with the rest of the country? My gut is immediately telling me um, s- stances on immigration and and sort of a deeper rootedness mm. in this sense of xenophobia, fear of the other, um, both racially and national identity wise. I think yeah. there was a moment in this administration, in the Trump administration, where there could have been a huge outcry from the evangelical community. That's a huge voter base of Donald Trump to say, because we are pro-life, we can't stand for the way that you're separating communities, you're separating families, um, the way that you're sending people back into danger um, and not allowing them to seek refuge and seek asylum in our nation. Like this, this is part of, of why we care about the pro-life issue is because we care about all families, regardless of what their passport says and regardless mm. of what language they speak and regardless of what their race or ethnicity is. And that just didn't happen. I think there were, there were individual voices who did speak up, but imagine if there had been this, yeah. this large outcry from people um, in that moment, how powerfully that would have spoke to the convictions of the community and, and demonstrated that they were able to expand beyond a single policy issue. And because it didn't happen, I think people are so easily able to identify that this community at large maybe seems to only care about some lives. And I think yeah. that's yeah, yeah, it's incredibly damaging uh, to the reputation and the credibility to actually speak to issues. Do you think that we should have as believers more of a whole life um, agenda and perspective rather than um, looking at the pro-life only being an anti-abortion type agenda and Definitely. perspective? Yeah, I think the whole life is critical. Um, and this is something that I've really admired being at Notre Dame and also learning more from, from friends who are Catholic and the larger Catholic community and Catholic social tradition is that there really is this strong conviction about whole life. 
um, and that leads to strong yeah. advocacy against the death penalty and care about immigration mm. and and compassionate border policies, et cetera, et cetera. And I really learned yeah. from that tradition and how it, it remains consistent on a diversity of policies and seems to also lead to a greater diversity in the way that um, people informed by Catholic faith traditions are voting. I was just looking up those statistics and it looked like in this election, it was um, close to 50-50, which is really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. I saw so that. I think making space, I mean, it seems so obvious. Of course, the whole life is so important. Um, and it speaks to a lot more diverse issues, um, not to belittle the importance of abortion or early life whatsoever, but um, I think it certainly is important to expand that perspective. Yeah, I 100% agree. Uh, kind of shift gears, what do you think the church's voice should be in this election process now that we know that we have Biden and Kamala as our vice president and president. Um, what do you think the church's role and from our church leaders should be? Yeah, I think um, the reality is that there's no such thing as a Christian policy or a Christian politician even like beyond personal faith like this person is endorsed mm. by Christianity or endorsed by God and this policy like that does not exist wow. but there are faith informed values and ways that we relate to each other and those values can inform policy and I think there's two dangers of the church in this moment and actually just in general with the way we interact with politics and one is to start saying this guy or, or this woman, they are endorsed by God. Or this policy, it is a Christian mm -hmm. policy. Everyone should be in support of this. And I think that leads us towards a dangerous path of um, creating tribes and creating lines of who's in and who's out and putting up people on pedestals who are just people or policies that have a diversity of impacts <laughs> you know they weren't they weren't inspired uh -huh. by yeah. god like that's just not how policy making works um and so i think that's one danger yeah and i think the second danger is to say we don't have anything to say about politics we don't have anything to say about policy what we need <laughs> to do is focus on our personal spiritual development and our community development and never get out there into the world where it's messy. And I think that's just as dangerous because yeah. then you're ignoring um, what I think Christ has set an example of is being involved in the world, being involved in the messiness um, in people's lives, speaking truth to power, engaging in ways that really speak with people. And if you're just focused on your personal spiritual development, um, you're never going to get there. And you're never going to be able to embody Christ in the way that I think he calls us to. And so I think there's this really precarious middle ground where we're both acknowledging that values inform us and we have shared values. And 
those can lead us to decide and, and take strong stances on policy and on politicians and on power in the world, but that we can't prescribe the way um, that Christians are involved in politics. And so it's, it's definitely a precarious ground and, and line to walk, but I think that is the role of yeah. the church going forward. Yes, perfect. Uh, perfectly <laughs> said. I have nothing to add to that. Um, one of the last things I would ask is kind of like what you were saying of there's been this danger of saying this is the Christian policy. This is the Christian candidate um, and how that is just so inaccurate and can lead into so many different dangerous rhetorics and mindsets and making excuses for things because we're putting this as God ordained this policy or this person um, in politics. What do you think should be faith informed agendas that we should be pushing under this administration mm-hmm. that line up with our yeah. convictions? Yeah, um, that's a good point. I actually just had my mind blown. I grew up thinking that um, the commandment, like, do not use the Lord's name in vain, was about like expressions, which you know, are important. But then I was talking with a friend and she was like, no, it's about, um, you know, it might be about that too, but at the heart, it's about using God, God's name and God's um, image and values to manipulate people into doing something that serves your aims. And I think that's what we Mm. do when we say, you know, like this politician is God's choice we're really using God's name to manipulate and wow. get people towards our own ambitions and our own perspectives and beliefs. And so, yeah, I think it's a huge mm. danger at the same time. I think there are policies that are really important and that I will say, you know, I'm not going to say these are endorsed by God, but I'm going to say my values as a Christian and as someone who cares deeply about, um, Christ and about other people and about um, scripture, etc. This is how it's sort of guiding me to think. And one of them is on care for creation and climate change and how, you know, this was the first commandment given to humans in the garden was um, to care for the garden and to till and to watch over it. And so I think that's a call that continues to this day and one that we are currently as a society, like deeply failing to live up to. And it's not just having an impact on the physical creation, but on people, on their health, on communities that are at at risk to extreme heat or at risk to sea level rise. Um, or at risk to natural disasters. We're seeing that play out with um, incredible intensity in the United States as we're seeing natural disasters, you know, pick up intensity and really impact communities. And so I think my faith values are telling me, you know, strong action on climate change is critical um, and is something that reflects this, this value of caring for creation and caring for communities. I think another issue that's definitely speaking to me right now um, is this challenge, I guess, uh, the large challenge of mass incarceration in this nation and the way that the justice system is Mm. failing vulnerable communities, is tearing apart families, leaving children vulnerable, um, and also, you know, 
completely and utterly failing at providing people the kind of support that they need to re-enter society and build up relationships and find a way to get a livelihood and to live. And I think these are really structural problems that are are really damaging the fabric of our nation and also really related to challenges mm. of racial justice. And so I think another policy that my faith values are informing me to support are things that um, challenge traditional forms of justice, challenge mass incarceration, and think about ways that we can begin introducing forms of restorative justice or um, community reconciliation and sort of transition from militarism and policing and incarceration into other forms of rehabilitation and community support that might be more effective at accomplishing the kinds of societies that that we want to see yes 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 and more yes uh i am so thankful for this conversation and it's always so refreshing to talk with other young believers that are not voting traditionally conservative and are like actually pushing the agenda and having productive conversation about our faith and how we can continue to push it and challenge each other. So thank you for providing this dialogue and truly making yeah, it like a refreshing yeah, thank you conversation. Thank so for having me and for hosting these conversations. Um, you know, long-term, I think this is really important and um, really important for young people to hear that there are alternative voices in the church and in the community and that when yeah. we do come together and we talk and we mm. um you know collaborate like this is really important to enacting change in the church and in our nation and i think that's really critical yes thank you um elsa can yeah. you just close yeah, this yeah, out in to. prayer um dear lord thank you so much for the opportunity to have this conversation um and to connect with people and be refreshed and rejuvenated in the work that we're doing please hold us accountable to the values that you have set out for us most most prominently um like a, a constant commitment to love and to respect for the human dignity of others and i pray that you allow us um to use our platforms not to promote our own aims, but to hopefully work for people who are disenfranchised of power um, and who are looking for a sense of hope and a direction and a way forward in life. So um, I pray that those values and a strong commitment to community and to love will be at the heart of the work that we do um, both in the political arena and in, in every arena that people are working um, in your name. Amen. I am so thankful for that prayer from Elsa, and I thank you for listening to this entire episode. I pray that after listening to this episode, you can feel challenged on how to have a holistic mindset regarding politics. Follow us on In This Moment podcast on Instagram, subscribe, share with others, and comment your favorite part. Lastly, thank you for being in this moment with us. Stay tuned for season two.